The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we'll start with a short sitting. you can, if you can visualize this or imagine it or sense it, feel it, think about it. See if you can enter into this image that I will describe. So imagine or perhaps remember sometime in your life. Imagine that you're in a beautiful, pristine mountain wilderness. Beautiful day, safe place for you, you feel very contented. You've been walking for a while in the mountains and feel quite present in your body. Your thoughts and concerns have fallen away. And the mountains and the trees, the rivers, all seem so sharp and clear and present for you as you walk around them with them. perhaps tall mountains in the distance. Perhaps the greens of the trees are quite intense, clean, clear. The mountain tops are clearly white with snow. And then imagine that you come to a lake, beautiful lake, alpine lake. And you sit or stand at the edge of the lake and you look into it. And you see that the surface of the lake is completely still and flat, not a ripple. And that the water is clear peaceful. It's so clear and still that you can see right to the bottom of the lake. And what you normally can't see in the bottom of the lake stands out really clearly. You see the pebbles almost magnified through the water such clarity. There's fish swimming about. And you're struck by how pure, clean the water is. 
so clear, transparent. It's almost as if the water is not there. And everything that's usually murky is seen with great clarity in the water. A fish swims by and you're surprised by the clarity and the closeness that the fish seems to you. Perhaps your mind becomes quite still, <clears throat> quiet, maybe in awe, appreciation, delight in seeing. The water, the lake, the clarity, the purity of it all. clear sense maybe of the lake, its clarity, then imagine what it'd be like if your mind was that clear, if your mind was that still and peaceful and pure as the quiet still lake. And then the things that appear in your mind appear clearly, but they appear within the clarity, the purity, the water. And you see them from what they are, yourself, safe, distinct, not caught by any of it. Today we're going to study a discourse of the Buddha where the climax of the discourse is this image that I just gave you of the lake. And it's an image that's used as an analogy for what's possible for the mind. think it would be like to read a discourse by the Buddha and to have this as a reference point for what's being discussed.
What do you think it'd be like to come across teachings? Reading teachings, taking in teachings, be interested in teachings that are leading you, pointing you to a mind, a heart that's like this. Welcome to our Sutta study day. And for the next uh, three hours or so, we'll be exploring a particular discourse of the Buddha called the Samanafala Sutta, sometimes translated into English as the fruits of the homeless life or the fruits of the recluse life or the fruits of the renunciant life. And that's considered to be one of the most important of the discourses of the Buddha. And uh, so it has some value to study. And um, I'm happy to be here with you to study it. So we'll, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do some teaching. I'll do some teaching. We'll do some discussion. We'll have some breaks, and we'll keep kind of that kind of cycle going through the the day. I guess we're scheduled to end at one o'clock, right? So, um, <clears throat> so uh, what do you think it would be like to engage, investigate, to read, listen to a discourse like this or a text if you knew ahead of time that this kind of clarity and purity of mind was the what it was all really pointing to? That's really what it was about, even though initially, you, what's, this, what's this about? What, what, how would that prepare you? How would, that, how, would you kind of be, how would you then kind of be prepared or be, what kind of attitude or approach or, what would you have? What were some of the possi- various possibilities that might come to mind for you? So if you could wait for the mic, that would be helpful. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, whoever's the manager can be responsible for passing the mic around. And there's two mics, so there could be two managers. They, they, were, they were arguing who was going to be the manager today, so they should both be deputized. Please. Ease. So ease. So you start eating it, reading it with some ease. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
What do you think, Robert? What do you think? I think that it would it would um, evoke a sense of receptivity, a sense of openness, um, and uh, just receiving curiosity. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. For me, that's um, joy and confidence and hope. <laughs> Great, thank you. Give it to Chris. Let's see what Chris has to say. Well, I was just remembering that when I first started this practice, I, I would describe it to people as being like a cool drink of water, you know, in, instead of either Coke or wine or something. <laughs> or something. <laughs> so this reminded me of how encouraged I was to find that kind of teaching. Mm, great, thank you. So over here, Diana. If I had the idea that the purpose of the sutta was to lead one towards that clarity, that would help me and not get and two things. One, not get bogged down in the details that I didn't quite understand. And two, to notice what makes, when I'm reading this, what makes me feel agitated and away, takes me away from kind of some clarity of mind and not hold on to those things. Great, thank you. Maybe one more? Anybody else? I would say that it piques my interest. It's not just a boring old text. It's something that's happening here and now. Great. Thank you. Okay. Um, I neglected uh, to, to do one thing in the introduction. Welcome. Is um, to kind of a warning about the day. I have a 12-year-old son who's home alone this today because he has a sore throat. And uh, he's comfortable enough being home alone. But uh, he knows my, my phone. He knows he can call me if something comes up. If he needs me. So I have my cell phone right here. So, <coughs> so if it rings um, and looks like it's him, then I'll have to answer it. If it's uh, some, anybody else, I'll just silence it. <coughs> so that's why we all prepared for that. <coughs> um, okay, great. So now I want to tell you a story <coughs> that's connected to this discourse. That's not... Uh, <clears throat> some of this is the background material for this discourse. The Buddha um, uh, left to become a renunciant himself, and a, a samana. <coughs> samana means someone who is uh, kind of not exactly. Not all of them are ascetics. So that's not the right word. But uh, I, call, I like the, the translation renunciant. Someone who has left the home life, the usual domestic life. <coughs> and uh, is engaged in seeking <coughs> a life of peace. And the word samana can mean, uh, the root of it can mean a seeker. It could also mean someone who is even or equal or has some kind of peace connected to peacefulness. But it's clearly in the lifestyle of the time, someone who's left the, just the normal uh, conditions of life. Uh, it was a stri- kind of people in the old, old, old India or stratified life, that particular lifestyle, they had to live vocations they had to live, they were born into, 
There was very little movement uh, possible. You know, you couldn't just go to college and get a new job. It's different from your parents, you know. It's kind of like... But these seminars were kind of like the dropouts or the people who step outside of the normal society to do the seeking or to find some kind of spiritual, religious fulfillment. And so the Buddha was that. He did that at the age of 29. Soon after he was... uh, Uh, he was noticed and seen by <coughs> a king named Bimbasara, and Bimbasara saw him walking down the street. He wasn't still he wasn't yet enlightened, but was so struck by the dignified carriage, the way that he carried himself, uh, that he seemed to be like, like royalty. And the story was he was, but was struck by him, and called on him and asked him to kind of work for him or something. And the wizard, no, I can't do that. But uh, he became a friend of this king, and uh, they had many encounters over the years many years. <clears throat> and um, when the Buddha was uh, in his 70s, perhaps about 72 or something, 73, uh, the son of Bimbasara, the King Bimbasara, his name is Ajatasattu, uh, uh, was approached by Devadatta. Devadatta was a monk in the Buddhist order who was uh, trying to usurp the Buddha's uh, leadership a power struggle to usurp the leadership and become the leader of the order himself. He was jealous. He was a cousin of the Buddha and they were And family dynamics were playing out. And, um, and, he did, and Devadatta did a variety of things. He tried to kill the Buddha, get the monks away from the Buddha, cause schism. So he was kind of seen as this kind of evil monk, this bad guy. And he went to the prince, uh, to uh, uh, King Vingvasara's um, son, uh, a fellow named Ajatusattu. And... Um, Kind of conspired with him, and in, uh, and uh, in order for Ajatasattu to, to take over the kingdom from his father, had his father imprisoned, and when his father was in prison, he died there in prison. He was starved to death, I think. So Ajatasattu was responsible for killing his own father, and uh, and so uh, and then through Devadatta was involved in various schemes to try to kill the Buddha. He. Um, um, Anyway, I don't have to go into the details, but there were various attempts to kill the Buddha. So this happened when the Buddha was about 72 or so. Um, this Ajatasattu, then after he usurped the throne, uh, declared war on the neighboring uh, kingdom of, I think, Kosala, uh, where another friend of the Buddha, uh, another king named Pasanadi, was the king, and also had been king for a long time and was quite close to the Buddha declared war, to, war on Pasanadi's kingdom, a truce was set, so the war came to an end. And part of that truce was Pasanadi sent his daughter uh, to become um, Ajatasattu's wife. And that daughter uh, had a son um, and, uh, who appears in our discourse. So, that, so, so at some point, when all this happened, it takes a while to usurp the father and um, declare war and have the war end and get a wife from, from it and then have a kid you know, I don't know how many years would that all take you think you know it probably takes two or three years for that process to come through right <clears throat> so you know it could go quickly I suppose but but you need at least nine months for it all to happen and um, and so perhaps the Buddha now is maybe 75 years old somewhere between the time Buddha died around it was 80, 81 so between the time the Buddha is quite old 75 to 80 um 
And uh, there's, there's a war in the air, there's this usurping of the throne, the kingdoms that Buddha was quite closely connected to are being threatened and fighting. Uh, as we get even closer to the end of the Buddha's life, uh, we have, um, just in the last months of his life, we have Ajatasattu, this evil king, sends a minister to the Buddha and, and tells him, uh, I'm planning to attack another neighboring country, the Vijayans. And what do you think about my chances for doing that? And then the Buddha gives this advice, very famous advice, where he says that uh, if uh, uh, people gather and meet regularly in concord, it's very hard to conquer them. You can't really take them over. And I think at that point, I just decided not to attack, because it seems like the Buddha is saying, don't. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, it just gets delayed. And uh, soon thereafter, the Buddha dies. And Ajatasattva then, then kind of galvanizes his forces and does it, goes further and, and, uh, and uh, conquers some neighboring countries. Ajatasattva is the first king uh, in India that begins creating a bigger empire, the Indian Empire. He was kind of the beginning of that stage of Indian history where the empire builders were happening. So this is the guy. He kills his father. He's conquering neighboring countries. He has no, no end in sight of conquering and doing all this. Buddha is an old man. And the Buddha knows that uh, this, you know, knows the story of what all this is about. <clears throat> Ajatasattu, you can imagine, uh, has a bad conscience, or at least feels a little bit bad about killing his father. It's a beautiful November night, beautiful time in India. The weather is not too hot, not too cold, not rainy. It's a beautiful, clear, clear night, <clears throat> beautiful full moon. Perhaps the king can't sleep. He's on the roof of his palace, or the kind of terrace of his palace, and with his ministers, um, enjoying the view, the serenity, the peace that's there. But perhaps <clears throat> uh, he can't quite uh, feel the peace because he's not at peace. And so he asks, you know, who can I go talk to? Who are the religious kind of seekers of the time and place where I can experience some, some of my, uh, some peace for myself? And eventually he gets directed to the Buddha, to go see the Buddha. And so he agrees, and um, he gathers together what looks like a um, an army. You know, five hundred elephants. Elephants were war instruments. You know, it's like gathering together all your tanks and all your Hummers. You know, and you take your five hundred tanks and Hummers, and you put all your five hundred wives in those. <clears throat> he, had, he had a lot of wives. Five says in the discourse. And you drive off, you know, and you imagine, you know, coming down Birch Street, you know, and parking around here, you know, all these tanks, and you know, how would I, you know, I wonder how it feel. What's up, Havgunder? <clears throat> so he comes along, <clears throat> middle of the night, full moon night, with all his entourage, and he comes to a grove where the Buddha is with a large gathering, very large gathering of monks. The king's been told there's a thousand plus monks here. And he has to get off his his, uh, his uh, elephant to walk the last bit into the grove, and it's so silent and still that he can't imagine that it can be so still, and uh, so many people there, and so he's worried that he's been tricked into an ambush, and um, and so he says that his hair stands on end, <clears throat> and but his administrator who's taking him there says, "Don't worry, everything's cool." But here's a man who's been fighting wars, engaged in wars, has a lot of enemies, uh, walking out in the, into, into the darkness and the full moon night into the forest. And you'd imagine that being afraid is 
pretty easy for a person like that. And um, wondering what's his, what's up. But he trusts his minister as he goes in and goes to see the Buddha there and turns out the monks are sitting in meditation. They're very silent. And maybe some of you have been to a meditation retreat where you have maybe 50 people, 100 people sitting. The stillness of the room is quite something when you have that kind of stillness, different kind of stillness and silence than just an empty room. And, um, and he asks the Buddha, um, uh, he says to the Buddha, there's a lot of people who have crafts as work, uh, who are, are proficient in their work, uh, benefit from their work in this lifetime, here and now. They get money, they get wealth, they get comfort, they get a variety of benefits here and now. And, um, but you guys, you renunciant types, who are stepped outside of society, who have stepped out of the, the normal commerce and taken care of our, our society, um, uh, what benefit does it, that comes from your lifetime, your lifestyle? So here's a man that was involved in trying to kill the Buddha, coming to the Buddha. A man who killed the Buddha's friend, King, Bim, uh, King Bimbasara. How, how would it be like for the Buddha to receive such a person? What would it be like for you to receive someone who killed your father? You're sitting there, sitting quietly, peacefully minding your own business, and the killer of your father shows up. Hey! <laughs> and then it could be seen as kind of, the question could be seen as a little bit of a threat. You know, what good are you guys? It could be seen that. After all, he's a king who kills people. So you want to be careful about you know, what he asks and how you respond. So what are you guys up to? What, what, how can you prove yourself? But also, in there, inherent in the question perhaps is a man who's quite troubled. And he's coming to his advisor, spiritual advisor, to somehow get some kind of relief for his troubles. And the way he asks it is, um, you know, what benefit comes from the kind of lifestyle that you, li- you live? And um, so the Buddha begins by talking about um, if you have a slave, because <clears throat> they had slaves back then, and the slave somehow escapes and becomes ordained as a monastic. It doesn't say a Buddhist monk, it just says a monastic. Then <clears throat> um, would you go out and hunt them down and grab them and bring them back to be your slave? You know, this is a man who's quite powerful, has you know, basically the power of life and death over a whole kingdom, maybe others. And he can get his will asserted anywhere. He's kind of dictator. <clears throat> what um, would you do with your slave? And he said, oh, if the person lives, uh, follows a renunciant lifestyle, one that's dedicated to kind of ethical purity or something, I would leave him alone. Not only would I leave him alone to be a renunciant, but I would um, honor him and support him in his life. <clears throat> And, and uh, that's the Buddha. That's the first fruit. That's the first benefit that comes from this lifestyle. You get this kind of care. And the Buddha goes on, and then he begins describing what happens <coughs> if you follow uh, the uh, renunciant lifet- lifestyle the Buddha teaches. And he leads the, the the king stage by stage through his benefits. And imagine the king's kind of his guided meditation for the king, that uh, you you receive all these benefits. Uh, uh, you'll feel um, the certain kinds of happinesses, of blamelessness. Here's a man who feels blame and shame and you know remorse, perhaps. And he's what's being the Buddha's evoking the the bliss or the happiness of being blameless, blameless by living an ethical life. Perhaps the king feels worse, but perhaps the king is inspired by this. It's meaningful for the king to hear this possibility of a heart and a mind that's blameless from living an ethical life. 
The Buddha talks about the happiness of blamelessness uh, from guarding the sense um, faculties <clears throat> by somehow not being caught up in all the advertisements, desires. Here's a king, right, who has apparently a harem of 500 women, wives, right? Um, so it's, you know, he must be a little bit busy <laughs> with that and other things. And his sense faculties probably are not that controlled. And, uh, but to be told, oh, there's a kind of a, a, a bliss or happiness can come from somehow taking control of your own sense faculties. Must, it must have been quite an impact on him, I imagine. And then um, there's a, the, the kind of uh, the benefit, the fruit of contentment. Here's a man who's probably not content. He's, you know, avaricious. He wants to conquer more kingdoms. Um, probably wants more wives. Probably 500 is not enough. If you have 500, imagine you want more. And so, <clears throat> you know, the idea of being content is something which is foreign to him. And he, the Buddha evokes this, the idea of feeling of contentment. So maybe, maybe it's meaningful to hear this. Maybe it's the first time he's heard this possibility. And then the Buddha evokes the idea of a clear, bright, purified awareness that permeates the body. The Buddha evokes the possibility of insight, of seeing clearly. And he does a lot of this, as he evokes these things, he evokes it with imagery. This course is full of imagery, similes, analogies, that are, you know, kind of could be used as visualizations. Um, and then he goes on to describe various attainments of concentration and various things. And then he um, uh, comes to um, this image of a lake that I gave you and talks about when the mind uh, becomes still enough and insightful enough uh, and liberated, it sees into the, uh, the, 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 just like you see into the bottom of the lake, you see into the bottom of your mind, bottom of your heart, and you see what actually operates there with great clarity in such a way that your heart is set free, you become liberated. The king hears all this, <clears throat> maybe guided along, and he's inspired. And, um, and he's so inspired that toward the person that he was involved in trying to kill, he says, I, would, I go for refuge with you. I take you as my support, my inspiration, my guide, guide some kind of guidance. I take go for refuge in you and your teaching and your community. Quite something. And then the king says, <clears throat> I have a lot to do. And the Buddha says, do as you wish. And so he goes off <clears throat> and does this, all the things the king does. And the Buddha, the Buddha says, if he hadn't killed his father, this discourse would have had such an impact on him it would have awakened his, the eye of wisdom in him. He would have become a stream enter. He would have wakened up. Probably the Buddha knew that the, 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 the king was so absorbed in the teaching. It wasn't just abstract. He was taking notes and checking off and that's good. But probably he was so engaged in the teaching that it was kind of like a guided meditation where he was kind of concentrated and still. Kind of these things were being evoked. <clears throat> and if he had the capacity he would have, something would have shifted and changed for him. He would have woken up to something. But this uh, killing his father is such a huge toll, such a huge stress on the mind that the mind was not capable of going that far. And then the discourse ends. 
So, so if that's the orientation for reading the sutra, how do you read it then? So, so what, 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 how do you, so if, you, if you're told that's a story ahead of time, and that's the background for the story, that's what the, you know, maybe it's, that's what the story is about in a sense, what would you, how would you read the story then? What would you look for? How would you relate to the story? What would you be your, your approach to reading it then? It might be different from the first way. <coughs> I'm happy to call on people. So Don, you can take the mic there, please. I would absorb as much focus as possible in, in the words and in the context. Because? That is what led the king to, towards the fruits of, of what the Buddha was teaching. So You're hoping for the same. Or some echo. Yeah, great. Thank you. Can you leave it on while we pass it around? Yeah, Jen, Jen can say something too. I have nothing to say. Make something up. <laughs> you heard the story. How did the story impact you I mean, as a, in a way that might influence how you now engage in, in reading the text? I guess I would probably try and immerse myself in it. Okay, great. What about Aaron? Oh, right here. I guess there are other people are volunteering now. <laughs> Save. Um, I think it um, points to me how important virtuous action is in being able to be open to the truth. Uh-huh. Over here to Ted. I think I'd be glad I haven't killed my father. <laughs> um, and also left wondering uh, what level of sins that I've committed might prohibit me from getting full benefit from this approach in the sutra. Okay, great. I think it gives it a cautionary slant as opposed to more of an aspirational slant for me. In what way cautionary? Um, It becomes more about um, avoiding suffering than moving towards peace in some sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, That question made me uh, realize that when you when you asked, I instinctively thought, well, I haven't killed my father. I haven't done anything on that magnitude. And that made me think, I, I think I should try to forget what I think I already know in reading this because um, I think sometimes when I read these texts, I come at it with the thinking, well, you know, these kings were killing people and they were, you know, they had 500 wives and I'm not like that. I already know so much about Buddhist teachings and you know, I already believe in that. I'm already sold. Um, so, but I think that would keep me from getting as much as I could out of really reading this openly and, and um, without some notion of separation from the people that he's talking to in the suttas. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, I think... Uh, 
Well, it would definitely give me a spirit of wanting to do anything or kind of renounce and maybe not take off on the Buddha so quick, you know. Uh, I, I, I'd probably have to feel more patience and and hang around a little longer. Uh, so what was the first time you found the first one? Didn't you? Well, I, I think there it it's it's an encouraging uh, read. So you, I would I would feel uh, moved to uh, I think I'll leave a lot of old uh, patterns and mm. lifestyle choices behind and and and, may, and hang around the Buddha a little longer, a little bit longer than yeah. the king did. <laughs> Great, thank you. <clears throat> I think it's a cautionary tale, and it um, it really shows the uh, the effect that one's actions has on one's either peace of mind or torment in one's life. Mm-hmm. So it's it's purely on it's one's responsibility to mm-hmm. act accordingly. Okay. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. Can I say one more thing? It's actually kind of funny now that I think of it that he puts that at the end. Because when I got to the end of this sutta, I didn't feel enlightened. <laughs> so he's kind of saying, if this guy hadn't killed his father, he'd now be enlightened. And I, I mean, I think most people that read it don't feel spontaneously enlightened. So you kind of have to ask yourself, oh, well, I'm not, what did I do to keep me from being enlightened by hearing this? Well, you probably didn't read it, uh, uh, read the text with as much uh, focus and presence as someone who was there at the time. There's a few things in the king's favor. Uh, one was uh, it's a quite a quite a significant setting to leave your world behind for a little bit and to go into a grove of trees, the woods, on a full moon night, beautiful night, be surrounded in this you know, kind of uh, concentrated group of monastics who are sitting there in tent listening. The Buddha also probably you know, shared in a certain kind of presence of calm or peace or presence or something. And so, and the Buddha was probably, you know, some unusual person that would kind of hold your attention in a certain kind of way. And that setting is very different than, you know, just kind of hanging out in the corner of Birch and, Hop- and Hopkins, right? <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> you know, so, and, uh, and also the, ki- the king came with, uh, maybe very motivated, I mean, this is a guy who had been trying for a while, right? He'd talk to the different ascetics. There was a report of asking the same question six other ascetics. So it was an important question for him. It wasn't just casual. Um, but it was something important enough for him that he went around and asked. And so there was a strength of interest and, and intentionality and presence and atmosphere, I think, that really maybe helps. <clears throat> it's very different than sitting on your couch reading the text, you know, just with your feet propped up and the radio on and... You know, and it's kind of you know, it's a little bit boring to read it uh, for the uninitiated, people who don't never kind of introdu- introduced to a text like this before. The language is kind of stilted and difficult to read, I think, and it's, it's pretty easy to fall asleep. I've, I've fallen asleep reading a lot of Buddhist sutras, um, and uh, I don't fall asleep as much because now that I've spent some time studying them, I've, I understand much more what's going on, and I'm, and I'm much more fascinated, and I see kind of the depth and the range of things going on. When I was in kind of first reading these things, I didn't know all these things that I know now about them, and I found them quite boring. <clears throat> Chris? I was just thinking about all the little tipping points along the path where you, you listen to teachings or you come here or something, and then what is it in the mind that just shifts and you say, oh, well, okay, back to work? Or, 
you know, like like he said, okay, I have things to do and left. So, you know, instead of necessarily looking at it as one big, you know, now I'm enlightened, just all the little points along the way where you commit more and more yeah. of your attention to the path. Or uncommit. Yeah, or uncommit to something else. Yeah. Yeah. What I'd like to suggest is that <clears throat> reading a text like this, um, it, it's it's uh, it's like a multifaceted jewel that you can look at it from many different angles, or maybe a multifaceted mirror, and it can you can mirror, you can mirror different interests we have, and um, and it's not just uh, there's not just one sutra here. There's maybe many sutras, and you can go back to it and and uh, you pull different things out of it, different interests. And this last week, when I was looking at it, one of the things I became interested in, and it kind of stood out for me, was um, what it's like to be the Buddha, to be the rec- in the receiving end of, of uh, what it's like to meet someone, be present. What does it take to meet someone and be present for them? How would you relate to someone who um, had killed one of your best friends, one of your best friends? You know, the Buddha, probably the king was a close friend or friend of the Buddha, someone the Buddha knew for a long time, uh, and someone who tried to kill the Buddha. What would it be? What's it like? You know, what, what's what, 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 how would you be? How would I be if uh, something like that came in here to IMC and and uh, you know, how would I relate to that? What would I do? What would it take? What would I have to look at in myself? What would it require of me? <clears throat> so that's this this discourse kind of uh, uh, is a mirror for me. Look at myself and how would I be? I mean, you know, even if it's you know lots lot less than just you know. Someone try to kill me. What if they just kind of, you know, wronged me in some much smaller way? What's my relationship to that? And uh, what, what would it take for the Buddha to be able to meet him seemingly with such kindness and openness and willingness and undefensiveness? Just there. I mean, the king was one who was afraid of going into this forest. The Buddha was someone who stayed still and peaceful, having the army descend. All these elephants. Please. Um, yeah, what I got out of it was um, this is perverse. It's kind of hope. Um, like you said, this was a time of uh, um, of set places in society for everyone. There's no retirement for a king, and maybe he had a conscious attack of maybe there's another way. And he went and saw the Buddha, and he saw that there was, but not for him. He was fixed in what he had to do the the course he started on yes there was only death for him just like for his dad and um, that's what I got out of it yeah, yeah. there's great hope for us in other words mm-hmm. so what I'm what I, what I trying to say is that uh, there's there are many different ways of reading this and one of the re- one of the reasons why it's, we consider it scripture in Buddhism you know sacred text in a way is um what it means to be a sacred text <clears throat> is that there's a community of people who are reading it and are using it as a reference point. And it's part of their, uh, that community's conversation, that community's kind of uh, reference point, understanding, shared kind of imagery, shared teaching, shared ideas, shared something. And uh, a, a, te- a text like this is not sacred unless there's a living community that's engaged in it. Uh, just like a language is not living unless people speak it. No one speaks it anymore. It's a dead language. If no one lives with a text like this, it's no longer sacred. It's just kind of it's just a text. 
and the different religious groups in the, around the world have these uh, texts that become the reference point. <clears throat> and like I'm aware of, like in the Old Testament, uh, like the uh, Jews and some Christians um, use the stories there a lot as reference points for guiding their lives. My mother-in-law, who was Jewish, um, she was very unreligiously Jewish. She claimed didn't believe in the religious side of it, but she loved reading the old the the, the Torah because it was um, um, she liked the stories there, and she found all this value in reading the stories and milking them for all the different kind of interpretations and mirroring of her own life and and um, really good stories can be interpreted dozens of ways. That's part of the reason why they're really rich for us. So here we have, uh, in our Buddhist tradition, we have stories, we have teachings. And so what do we read for when we read a text like this? We read to find out what the Buddha really taught, because the Buddha is the one who had ultimate authority in Buddhism. And we want to know what the, really what the truth is. And, and this is our Bible. We're fundamentalists, and we rely, rely on what it says in here. We're going to find out what the truth is. And now we'll know, because this is what the Buddha said. That's one approach. Another approach is to... Uh, to consider it, this text does not accurately record what the Buddha actually said. <clears throat> maybe there's some semblance of what the Buddha said in it. Maybe there's maybe it's a historical situation, but that it was compiled by someone afterwards, and it was compiled by a narrator. There's a narrator for this little bit, and that uh, and that narrator, that editor, um, uh, what you're getting is getting some sense of what that editor was about, and that editor not only some editors not only compose a text but also chose where to put it in the collection of Buddhist discourses. And it's in the Long Discourses of the Buddha, a particular collection. It's a second discourse in the Long Discourses. And someone chose to put it there. And why? How does it fit in the context of the t- text that came before it and after it in this, in this collection? What's the editors or the, ne- the composers of this text? What was um, his or her uh, intention? What were they trying to do and convey? As uh, more than just simply accurately recording report of what the Buddha was all about, um, and so you can explore it that way. What was the kind of composer's intent? You can uh, look at it from the point of view of how the tradition, <clears throat> the Buddhist early Buddhist tradition, and the Theravada tradition down to the current age, how do they use this text? How do they interpret it? What did it mean for this community? There's extensive commentary that uh, survive from this text. And if you're interested in the commentaries, quite a bit of this commentary has been. Tra- Important commentary has been translated into English by Bhikkhu Bodhi. <clears throat> so you can actually study the commentary and you, know, how, and you get a sense of how the, the, the later tradition, uh, they inter- understood the text. Um, we can read it uh, from the point of view of our own... So you can read it from the point of view of what the Buddha was all about. You can read it from something to learn something about that the early tradition was about. You can learn read it from the point of view of understanding what the later tradition was about a little bit and how it was used. You can also use it from the point of view of your own practice. Um, how is it this uh, supports me in my practice? Uh, is there some way that does that? You, um, is it, or how, how does this text inspire me to look and question my life in different ways? Does it challenge me? It, you know, so, for example, my challenge this week, how would I be if someone who wronged me in some dramatic way, how would I receive them, especially in my role as a teacher if they came walking in here? Um, and uh, you know, sincerely came with a question: What would I do? How would I feel? How would I be? And um, so, I mean, I'm sure there's great stories in other religions that I would maybe point to the same kind of idea, the same kind of challenge for me. But um, I kind of like it that it's a Buddhist story because 
um, then I'm in a community of other people who share that story as well and it becomes a reference point and other people maybe have thought about and grappled with the story as well they understand it yeah Wasn't uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi saying that the Dignakaya uh, was put together for converts uh, to, to inspire people to entertain the idea of becoming? Bhikkhu Bodhi has quoted a, um, uh, quotes a, um, there's a woman named, what's her name? Scholar. May. Her last name is May. Who, um, uh, wrote an article where she studied the different discourses of the different collections. There's five major collections of discourses, <coughs> and pointed out or suggested that there's a that there's a rationale for how different discourses were placed in these different disc, uh, the collections, and that um, the middle length discourses was primarily collected as a manual for monastics for monks primarily, and it was meant for monks, especially new monks, for their training and support. And, and you see that a lot of the discourses seem to from that point of view, it makes sense. That's that's how they were collected. The long discourse and the, the Samyutta Nikaya, the, the connected discourses of the Buddha, um, was really a wisdom text, and not so much about training and, and meditation practices, and and uh, but rather had much more to do with uh, the insights. You know, the deep, deeper insights. Once a person's well along in the path of practice and meditation, the kind of wisdom and insight aspects of the tradition that are, that come out. So, uh, really, for insiders. Uh, and then the long discourses, it, um, it's for, um, and then he said for the, 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 for the Anguttara discourses, the ones that have to do with the um, numerical discourses of the Buddha, that he, this, this woman, she's proposed that those are meant as manuals for Dharma teachers. It gives you all these lists and all these different kind of simple topics for laity. For a, lot of, a lot of teachings for laity is in the Anguttara Nikaya. And so it's a way of collecting probably a resource guide for people who gave a lot of Dharma talks. And then, uh, and then the long discourses of the Buddha is, uh, is much more debate-oriented. It's much more meant for non-Buddhists to convert them or defend Buddhism in relationship to them, to kind of present Buddhism in a different kind of light for these kind of people who are a little bit outside the fold. Um, that's a theory. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi seems to like this theory. So it makes quite a bit of sense. The reason why I brought it up is because it makes quite a bit of sense to put this sutta as the second sutta in, in a, like a convert-themed uh, nikaya uh, because it's not only a cautionary tale, like someone said over here, but uh, you know, a story of acceptance uh, as well, whatever your, mm-hmm. your past. So Acceptance, huh? Yeah, I think that's nice. Uh, the first discourse in the long discourses is called the Brahma Net Discourse, <clears throat> and it's a, it's a discourse that primarily focuses on um, uh, pointing out 62, I think it is, or 64 uh, wrong views, and uh, it, 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 it's kind of like a grid the way these uh, 62, 64 views are laid out, um, and so it's kind of a grid, kind of like a net. So it's meant to be like a net. They can catch all the wrong views, and so and some people uh, the way the way the canon in Theravada Buddhism is organized, the long discourses appears first, and so the first discourse of long discourse is the first discourse in the canon, kind of. It's not as important as Genesis being first in the Bible, but it's kind of you know, 
And so the first discourse is trying to um, clarify what is wrong view, what is the wrong approach to spiritual life, to religious life. And then, uh, and then this comes second, which uh, rather than saying what's right view, it's talking about uh, something much more pragmatic. It's talking about what are the benefits that come from the practice and what are the uh, practices and ways to get those benefits? What are the stages and the practice that lead to those kind of benefits? So, so it shifts away from beliefs and philosophy to uh, something pragmatic and utilitarian, something useful. And I think it's kind of nice that rather than uh, responding to the idea of wrong view by offering right view, it's responding to the idea of wrong view or, or introducing Buddhism by uh, offering what it can actually, what's actually done and the benefits that come from that. I think it's kind of nice. So I wanted to re-emphasize this maybe a third time now, that this discourse, any discourse, any scripture at all, can be read from many, many different vantage points. And, um, and what vantage point do you want to, uh, you know, any given time you read it, you can ask yourself, what vantage point am I reading it from? If you're reading a text like this, without first questioning what your vantage point, what your interest, what your approach is, uh, then uh, you're probably unconscious about something because you'll come with, always come with some approach, some attitude or some interest, something you have for it. But also you might be not milking or benefiting for, for getting all the richness or possibilities out of a text if you read it kind of casually uh, without thinking about what's the approach. There's so much that can be taken from this if you grapple with it, uh, consider it in different ways. Um, so, for example, I mean, so one, one approach for reading scripture, it's, uh, uh, which is quite modern now, it's, it's a word in the scholarly word world, it's called reader response approach. And that is where uh, you, it's not at all interesting uh, what the original intent of the discourse of the scripture is. Um, it's been interesting, but that's not what you're interested in now. The only thing that's interesting is how you respond to the text. So your relationship to the text and what the text does to you and all that. And uh, that was kind of a, was a, a fad for a while in academia to read texts from the reader response point of view. I think it's a nice one for people who are practitioners because it's, um, that's maybe how you can really face yourself and be transformed and changed if you also deal with, look at it from the point of view of how you respond to it and what you're looking for. It and, and there's so many different ways of doing that. Uh, hopefully, uh, all these approaches become interesting for people. And uh, sometimes you want to do it historically, uh, sometimes you want to do it personally. I find for myself that I'm very interested in the historical point of view to try to go back and see what, what can we learn from the Buddha, how, what the Buddha taught. Can we go back to the scriptures and see, you know, learn you know, what in essence or what, what was really the Buddha really teaching. Um, but not because I want to, uh, I'm, a, I'm a historian of abstract ideas. Because I f- uh, it's one approach I have of trying to then uh, of, of approaching these texts to have it reflect back to myself or have me reflected in it. That's another way to read texts. Is what? How do I see myself better from reading this? So, for example, if you say, "I don't believe this one bit. I don't like this," that's interesting. Rather than kind of just le- letting that be as it is. Say, look, okay, let me look more carefully at this. Why is it that I'm responding this way? Why do I have this reaction to it? And so, for me, this idea of going back and trying to find out best we can what the Buddha actually was about um, is really a very personal thing. 
It's not because I think, hopefully not because I'm a fundamentalist and thinking this is the truth, but rather I find it very useful to engage in this process with this, this kind of texts. Does that make sense? Is that slower? Yes, please. Yes. I was thinking about the emotional response uh-huh. to the text. Yeah. And um, for me, it was, there was a lot of sadness attached to the king, you know, not being able to forgive himself and the self-hate and how that, that was limiting his um, practice. Um, then I connected it to my own, you know, struggles. Yes. Practice and um, the moments when I feel that feeling and um, you know so in a way it was a urging to um, face that feeling and uh, overcome that and great beautiful I think that's, that's, that's a very significant uh, response um, so that that evokes something else that I considered as I read this week and that you know uh, there's also I think very important to question the Buddhist tradition and not to, it's very easy to hold a uh, religious tradition especially one that you're into and give it kind of some kind of major authority like you know absolute authority like it's all knowing um, I, I mean I, I, I struggled with this when I was a younger practitioner and there was a time in, when I was in the monastery in Japan where it, uh, I was committed to stay there a certain for a certain three-month retreat period and after a while, after halfway through, I realized that this was the wrong place for me to be. It was, it was kind of like a ridiculous place to be. The practice wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And, uh, but who was I, a little kid, you know, uh, who, um, young guy who didn't know much, to stand up against the authority of Zen Buddhism, you know, you know and, and say, this is not appropriate and I should leave. And so I struggled with that until I came to a place where I realized I knew that I, I should leave. And that, uh, and that there was quite a step to kind of, for me, kind of look up in the face of this great world institution, Zen Buddhism, you know. It doesn't actually exist, but I didn't know that then. <laughs> uh, and um, something I'd given so much authority to, and, and in a sense, take my own authority and realize what I had to do. And a variety of points, you know. So, um, um, so to question this text, you know, or to question the tradition in some way, so here's an example of how I question this this week. Say it this way. Say that uh, you were really deeply troubled by something you've done, maybe ethically, or you'd harmed someone. Deeply, deeply troubled. And you came to your, your spiritual counselor, advisor, your teacher. You came to your therapist, perhaps. And you said something like, you know, I'm really deeply troubled. And the therapist or the counselor or the advisor says to you, oh, you know, if you follow ethics, you get certain kind of happiness. If you can cultivate more contentment, you'll be contenter. If you uh, can just develop some concentration practice, you know, it'll, you develop some nice good, good feeling inside. It's really great. And if you have that really good feeling inside and have really concentrated and focused, then you might be able to get some real insights. And if you get some real insight, you could be free. Come back next week. <laughs> you know, maybe they did it a little nicer than that, but how would you feel about that? Would you go back? You didn't get much, re- you know, you didn't really engage you personally with your, you know, your situation. 
the Buddha doesn't engage the king at all. The king doesn't ask to engage the Buddha that way. The king asks a particular thing, and the Buddha responds that way. But the Buddha understands that the king is really troubled, and is limited, you know, by what he can do because of his killing his father is a pretty big toll on the on the on the heart. But the Buddha doesn't counsel him. He doesn't say, "How are you feeling?" You know, I realize you can't go very far on the path, but I'm sure we, maybe we could do something for you here. Uh, perhaps just you know, telling me what troubles you. You know, let's go for a walk, and you can tell me a little bit about. You know, you're a king, and so not that many people you can talk to, and so, you know, I'm a Buddha, and maybe you can at least we can go for a walk, and we can just can lighten your load a little bit and look at it a little bit. Maybe we can, maybe it'd be useful to kind of look at what you did and reflect a little bit, and maybe you can't go much further on further spiritually, but maybe you can learn from your mistake, and perhaps uh, maybe you know we think twice in the future about killing someone else. Isn't there something you could do? Would you expect a spiritual advisor to be more engaged in the person in the personal kind of way than how the Buddha was? I think it depends if you were the Buddha or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, so 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 I mean, so that's the kind of question. One of the, one of the kind of questionings I had with the text I was grappling with this week. What's this about? You know, why 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 is it, is it why is it so limited? His response here, and and what's behind that limited response? There might be a lot of wisdom. Maybe maybe that's all he could do. Or, you know, or maybe that's, you know, I don't want to kind of say the Buddha was wrong, but it's a dynamic you see sometimes in Buddhism where there's a certain kind of response that's sometimes excessively impersonal. And, and, um, and also, um, and then what went through my mind as well is, um, you know, we've had now, I don't know how long, a hundred years of psychotherapy in the West. And I think that there's a lot of um, understanding about uh, human psychology and the mind and social dynamics and family dynamics, relationships that have been learned in these hundred years of research. Some of it is bogus, right? And some of it is, is, is really wise and important to, for our culture, you know, for people. And so, you know, there's a lot of research went into that. The Buddhist tradition historically didn't have access to all that research. So they didn't know about counseling the way we do now. So maybe the Buddha it wouldn't have occurred to the Buddha to counsel. But if the Buddha was alive today, um, you know, he had his, you know, had knew some of these things. Would he have related very differently to the king in the way he did here? So that, you know, I don't have answers, but just kind of give an example of kind of grappling or questioning that went through my mind uh, as I read this this week. I don't think he would have uh, changed if he was in the 21st century. Uh, he realized life was tough and tragic things happen and he was uh, he saw this individual come before him and saw the limitations that that individual had as far as attaining any peace or liberation and his whole deal was freedom is liberation and so he probably saw this individual as well it's too bad it's not much I can do for you well, that's not true. I mean, if I may push back a little bit. Yeah. He did something for him. Uh, he did something very significant, enough that he went for refuge in the Buddha. It's a quite powerful thing to go for refuge and to feel that kind of level of inspiration. So he did something. But is it really that black and white? It's all or nothing for the Buddha. It's either, you know, liberation, you're going to give you that. Or what about everything in between? What about helping him become wiser, maybe a little bit kinder person, perhaps 
a little bit trying to deal with his guilt, perhaps, and, and lessening a little bit. Um, uh, would it be beneficial, someone is, certainly someone as important as a king, to offer them some kind of counseling and some kind of, some kind of level of healing? Even the healing can't be complete and he can't be ever get liberated. Are there other, other ways we can benefit someone? And I, w- I wouldn't settle for the idea, no, there's no more you can do for this person. That doesn't seem right to me. Well, maybe he was tired, old, and pissed off that he killed his friend. Ah. <laughs> Just kidding. So, Diana. So, I had actually a very uh, different thought. So, if we... Um, I, I was visualizing that the king is coming to where there's over 1,000 monastics. Who must, I'm assuming we're very practiced. And so I was imagining, how does it feel to be in a space where I imagine that there's a, people that are trained in kindness and compassion? So the Buddha is providing support in terms of words, but I was feeling like, oh, he must have got tremendous support just being in that area, right. being in that vicinity, being proximity to such highly practiced people. So he got a pretty big hit. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe this situation, this kind of conflict, the time and place, that was enough. It was all he could deal with. There was so much peace and love in the air that, you know, let, let him go home and digest it now. But, you know, I think it's beautiful. But part of the reason why I, I questioned why I did this week is that it's one thing to interpret the story that way, which is a nice thing to do. But it's another thing I've noticed historically, and I've noticed over the decades I've involved in Buddhism, uh, that a similar kind of dynamic sometimes operating, where people are saying, you know, just concentrate. You just do the practice, concentrate, and if you can't get concentrated because you have bad karma, you have bad, you don't have built up enough paramis. And I've known people literally who have hit their head against the, their zafu or, you know, the wall in a sense, or really tried, you know, you know, really tried hard for years to practice really, really hard. And it's really a pity sometimes, because what they needed was some kind of therapy. They needed some kind of deeper counseling of their issues. And they would have gone through something, and then the practice would have been a lot easier. And I've known teachers who say, oh, just get concentrated harder, push harder, concentrate more. And, and so this story echoes to me uh, what I've seen uh, in the Buddhist tradition already at times. Uh, Robert's trying, no? So the thing that occurred to me from your what you were saying about it is, and it was very clear in my mind, is that no one can, I, I, I think, no one can actually create that understanding in, in, in another person. And it's a matter of how much are you stepping forward. And you're saying he is taking refuge in the Buddha that there's two other things to take refuge in and um, in according to He took refuge in all three. In, in all three. But it seems to me that when I look back on my path that, you know, I, I see all these times when I was younger where I kind of was going toward something like this. But I don't have, re- I don't feel regret that, oh, why didn't I I wasn't ready, and I wasn't ready to be able to understand it at the level 
And so I think that you really have to be ready to sort of put your entire self behind what you're doing. You can't just, you know, say, wow, that's great. I would, that sounds beautiful. I want all that. And just have it because you want it. I think you have to do the work and you have to really have, there's that extra step that you have to put in. So the king wasn't ready for that extra step. So this is as far as he could go. So this is, this is all, all these points are valid. One of the things I want to try to, the point I'm trying to make here also is that, um, please don't succumb to the temptation to feel like now you understand the sutra because you have one interpretation. Um, you know, my, you know, if I succumb to the idea, oh, the Buddha just wasn't, you know, he wasn't trained as a therapist, so he missed this big opportunity, and if only he'd been, you know, gone to therapy school first, then you know, he could have helped the king a lot more. You know, this is a bad, this is, you know, just an unfortunate thing. Um, or someone else, another interpretation is that this is as far as the king could go. Um, you know, so you heard different interpretations here. Um, uh, I would suggest that we don't, it's not really very useful to decide which is the right interpretation, but it's actually very useful to hold them all and see them all. And because they all cast, um, give perspective on different situations you'll find yourself in at different times. And in some situations you'll find yourself one of the perspectives useful for that situation, others others. But also even in, in living situations you find yourself in, maybe even there there's not one perspective to have. There's different perspectives or approaches or understandings of that. And it's actually quite useful to be trained to look at all the different things going on, all the different approaches and perspectives that happen in any situation we find ourselves in. And so this kind of, to read text like this and discuss it this way and, and hear the different perspectives a person might have is a training also, it's a practice in its own right, it's a training in a sense to be able to do that in their regular life and not succumb to the, you know, one interpretation, this is the truth. So, first of all, I appreciate everyone's comments, uh, and I'll preface this. Sure. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I have the uh, the utmost respect for for psychotherapy and Western therapy. I'm trying to think of um, why the the Buddha is relatively disconnected in this situation, and uh, then reflecting back on other suttas uh, and thinking if I've ever. If, in memory, if, if I've ever seen him approach a person he's working with, like someone with a psychotherapy background, and I can't think of an example. And uh, while I think the psychotherapy or therapeutic approach, working with the self, is uh, valuable, it also opens up sort of a Pandora's box of, of self and opens up with the self, there's lots of space for delusion. Uh, so it seems like it's consistent with these being wisdom teachings to cut right through the self. So that's why Eastern teachers and Western teachers say focus on concentration, uh, or I think you said concentration earlier, because that's what helps you become your own teacher to see what's going on in your own life. It's this entire idea that uh, I've heard it said before that uh, psychotherapy or therapy is it's like rearranging the, the chairs in your room but uh, the Buddhist teaching helps you realize that you're, you know, uh, rearranging the furniture in your room, but the Buddhist teachings help you realize that you're actually in a room. You're potentially trapped in a room. You know, you're in your, right. your body there. Um, 
So it just seems like both are both have a lot of truth to them, but one is a a, a deeper wisdom teaching. Right. So that's what comes yeah. up for me. Yeah, it's a beautiful beautiful point of view, and um, and I just have been I've been aware I've been aware of a number of uh, Buddhist casualties because the the concentration approach, the impersonal approach, uh, didn't work and they needed something else. And also, you know, don't, don't, don't hold it, uh, not just psychotherapy as the model. There's also, I'm involved now with this whole uh, chaplaincy world. And chaplaincy world is kind of a wonderful uh, hybrid of counseling or therapy and spiritual advising. And, um, and you know, you, 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 uh, someone's on their deathbed. And it's very common on people's deathbed that one of the most important things they need to do is to do some kind of reconciliation or forgiveness process with people they love. And you, you, you tell them, you know, oh, just get concentrated. Everything will be taken care of. You know, you're in a, you know, this is an imaginary room you're in. Step outside. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't really work. And so, when, when, when's the time and place for different understandings and approaches? I think is very important to consider. And what's the strength and weaknesses of the Buddhist tradition? Does it have weaknesses? Do we admit that the Buddhist, that Buddhism has weaknesses? I'm all for the American approach to the past time with the influence of psychotherapy because I think it's, it's just more useful for the culture. And when you're ready as an individual, you will transition to the, the more traditional teachings. But that's different for everybody. There was a very interesting... Uh, someone came up to me this week. Uh, she, uh, an Asian-American woman who came up to me and said she's, I guess she's married to... A, she didn't, it wasn't clear exactly, but uh, someone who was uh, of a very different culture. And what I could make up was probably an Asian culture. <clears throat> and... Um, she had some trouble with his behavior, husband's behavior. And so she said, um, you know, you ask for help. And I said, well, hopefully you have a chance, you can talk about these things out front and hopefully he understands, even if it doesn't change, hopefully he, he understands that you're distressed by it. And, um, and so at least he understands you, you feel understood. And she said, oh, when I tell him my feelings, um, he comes from, she said, she, he comes from a collectivist culture. And when I tell him my feelings, he tells me I'm selfish. <laughs> so, so, what to do? You know, how do these two? What, how do you have this dialogue? And so, to go back to the sutra, I don't want to talk about these issues, you know, abstract. But to go back to the sutra, uh, how, you know, remember, we're, most of us, I think, are reading it from uh, from you know a Western cultural point of view. Um, some of you have been tra- raised in other cultures, so you know, you have, each of us re- reads it through our own cultural lens. And so for me to bring up this idea of even the word psychotherapy, perhaps, and other, other possible ways of meeting and talking with a king, um, you know, perhaps I'm bringing my own cultural perspective to see it. So these are all very interesting questions. It becomes richer and richer, the possibilities of looking at a text like this. And, uh, and what I'm trying to convey to you is the levels and depth and, uh, of richness and possibilities in the text here that, uh, depending on how you engage in it, what you bring to it, what questions and approach you bring to it, because I know from my own experience how easy it is to read a text like this as just kind of like, without any thinking about it, and just kind of like a dry, boring kind of text and kind of you're plotting to get through what's it trying to say. And, um, and uh, you know, that's, doesn't, that doesn't really make it come alive. I'm married to somebody from India, and um, when I was listening to the sutra, what came to to my mind was um, there's a certain abruptness to 
um, the way I've experienced communication with people from India in particular. And sometimes it can come across as lack of caring, when in fact there's a lot of caring, but it's just a very um, a delivery that's very different from um, what I've been used to. And um, now that I'm used to it, it's a lot easier. Uh, and I, I can see behind the words and, and the tone. And, and, but I was just thinking about that, listening to um, how the, the Buddha communicated with the, yeah. um, you know, the seeker. Yeah, yes, and, there, and there's so, so when we read a text like this, we have to ask ourselves, what, is, what are the cultural uh, ways of communication, relationships that are inherent in this text? And you'll see as we go through it after the break, that uh, there, there's, a, there's a variety of subtle things that are going on here that many of us would just kind of not even notice as we go through. Um, and what does that mean, these, these subtle differences? So for maybe, for example, one um, um, uh, I wanted to point out, um, when uh, in the story, the, um, the, there's ministers who talk to the king. His ministers are talking to him, suggesting going seeing different uh, seekers. Then the, the minister reports having go, the king reports having gone to these different uh, ascetics and asking them questions, and, th- and those ascetics talk to the king. The ministers and the ascetics all refer to the king as your majesty when they're talking English. Uh, but they were talking English, right? They're talking. The word that they use to refer to you know, the title that, that we translate as your majesty is Deva. Deva usually we understand as a god, so he's being referred to as a god. He's not, he's not taken as a god, but it's kind of uh, offered as a very high status. So that's kind of interesting, you know, in itself. But then you see what the Buddha, what the Buddha says, when the when the when the Buddha refers to him, he doesn't say Deva, he doesn't say Your Majesty. He says Great King, Maharaja. What is that? What's 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 what cultural dynamics? What dynamics played out by that? How a, the title of someone's referred to? And I would suggest that there's some not that important. Not a very important point, uh, but there is a there is a point. There is some subtle going on there about uh, the relationship between people, the relationship of the Buddha to the king, what he's willing to call him, what other people call the king, uh, what it means to call someone God. Uh, that's also kind of very subtle cultural things going on in the text that uh, you, know, you wouldn't, you probably didn't, probably none of you noticed that it went from Your Majesty to Great King. You know, there was a, sh- a change there in the titles. The etiquette comes through. A lot of things come through. Okay, so I think we should take a break. So is this okay with all of you so far? You know, I hope we haven't even looked at the book. And um, and uh, so let's take a break and. Um, and then we will um, come back and open the book a little bit.